Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Well, good day to anybody who's out there listening to the epic narrative, because that's exactly where you are, listening to the epic narrative. Here we are, all the way into chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. And, as you know from last week, we're only through chapter uh, verse 11. So we're going to pick up at verse 12 of chapter 37 in the book of Genesis, where it says... Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing flocks. Shocks. <laughs> Sorry. Are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come. I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and the flocks and bring me word back. And then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron where Joseph arrived at Shechem. Wait, okay, okay, okay. Now, we obviously, we need to stop there because we can't keep going at this current rate. We've missed so many details. He says, he says to Joseph, he's like, come here. I want to talk to you. Right now, remember, Joseph is in charge at this point. You can tell because he's not out in the fields running around with the sheep like his brothers are. And now his brothers, remember, they're all, they were all born within a seven-year period of time. So it's, even though Reuben right? Reuben is the oldest. Everybody in between is pretty close. Seven years is pretty close, especially, you know, when you're, when you're pushing, you know, into your twenties at that point, it's kind of like everybody's the same, but Joseph is in charge and everybody knows why Joseph is in charge. He's in charge because dad loved his mother more, made no secret of it. So, they were gone. They were grazing their father's flocks near Shechem. Now, I, I don't know if you recall. <laughs> this, this is interesting, even for me. Like when, when, it, when I was doing, you know, all the research on this, and I was like, wait a minute, Shechem? Like several episodes ago, we had this huge deal in Shechem. Remember, Dinah gets raped and kidnapped and and... I don't know, maybe, maybe, I, I don't know. She She's there. I have no idea what it would be like to re, be raped in that culture. Uh, I have no idea what her expectations were. Uh, but the bottom line is, she was, an, she was noted in legend to be that outgoing type of personality. She gets in there, into the city with all the, all the other women, wherever they were, around the, around the watering hole or whatever. She gets noticed by the prince. She gets taken back. She gets raped. And then what do her brothers do? Well, her brothers, remember, they come in and they, quote, kill all the men. Now, that phrasing, if you remember the episode we went over, it could mean that they killed all the men. It could also mean that they killed a lot of men. It could also mean that they killed the leadership, uh, all the elders, the leaders that would hang out uh, in the court how, in the courtyard of the palace and the city gate. Either way, this is where they went to graze their flocks. They're, they're not a welcomed group of people. They're, 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 they're not, at, at the very least, they're either hated or feared by, by the people of Shechem. I'm guessing there are relatives in Shechem that didn't appreciate whenever, you know, whenever their names were mentioned. And this is why I don't think that when it says like they killed all the men of Shechem, that it meant that they killed all the men of Shechem, is that Shechem is still a city and is still operational at this time. And there's men and women that are there that the city has not lost um, rhythm, so to speak. I think they probably killed all the elders and leaders in, in and around the city gate and the palace. And the rest of the men just, just were left to pick up the pieces. And there were a lot of families that were impacted by what they did. And a lot of families probably hated them and a lot of people were afraid of them because some of them looked at it like a spiritual attack that the God of Jacob and of his of his children was one that could that you know that that would uh allow them to do this and allow them to defeat their city. And this was this was taken not taken lightly. So they were probably either feared 
or hate it. But evidently the new rulers, they didn't really have any issue with Jacob. They didn't, they didn't ask him never to come back. They didn't, they didn't, you know, ostracize him from any of their property. So when the land was green and the brothers needed a place to go with their flocks, they went toward Shechem. The brother, the the, the father was like, head toward Shechem, feed the flocks, you know, have a great have a great time, and Joseph stayed behind. Joseph was hanging out at the house, running the business, keeping track of the markets, overseeing all that needs to be overseen, and his father calls him in. He says, now, you know, your brothers are out there grazing the flocks near Shechem. I'm going to send them to, I'm going to send him to them, you to them, sorry. So he, he sends Joseph to find the brothers who he knows at some level, don't really appreciate the fact that he's now in charge. Now, we've, we've covered the, uh, the dreams already. So we know that, that, again, the father has taken it into his heart, even though he, he gently rebuked Joseph for, for considering that even he would bow down before him. He also pondered it in his heart. He was like, you, you don't bring up these kind of dreams unless you're really convinced that God gave them to you. That was part of the part of the culture of their day. And if if man, if that's true, then he knows Joseph is gonna be in charge. And maybe he thinks this is this is his way of partnering with God's plan to put Joseph in charge. Maybe he thinks it's just a family thing, doesn't understand it to be necessarily a you know a national thing. And maybe it could have been either or if the brothers, you know, don't sell Joseph into slavery. But it but again. At some level, he knows that things with, with Joseph and his brothers aren't perfectly cordial, but Joseph agrees, and he goes, yeah, all right, I'll go. Now, does he go because his father asks him, and he, and he doesn't know how to say no to his father? Does he go because he thinks, well, the brothers don't like me, but that's their problem, and I'm just going to have to deal with it? Does he, does he you know, what's, what's going through his mind when he says, yes, very well, I will go? He gets his assignment. Okay, I want you to go find them. I want you to see how things are going, and then I want you to bring word back to me. So he goes. It's it's a very uh, simple task. It's not. He doesn't bring a ton of supplies. He doesn't. Uh, you know the the next the next verse in the verse fifteen it says a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him what are you looking for. Every indication is, is that he traveled alone. He, you know, I don't know. I doubt he walked. He probably was on a, on a donkey. He's he traveled, probably the main the main thoroughfares. Most people knew who he was because he was in charge of all the marketing. And Jacob had huge flocks and a huge uh, amount of wealth that went in and out of his compound. So people knew who Joseph was. People knew who Jacob was. They again, especially around around Shechem, they knew this family. So he's headed to, uh, you know, to Shechem on a on a very well traveled path, and and he's wandering the fields. He's going from one feeding site to another, and there's other shepherds there, and there's other uh, sheep around, but no one's talking to him. Again, because they either hated him or feared him. But either way, these it's it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, if you want. <laughs> If you walked into your, you know, you're wearing your favorite football team's jersey, but you go into the rival, uh, you know, the rival stadium, you don't bring any friends, you don't, you know, you don't bring any any security. It's just you wandering alone uh, into your seat in the middle of a pack of people that don't like you, and now you you drop something and can't find it. And you're trying to, you're, you're just looking, like you're kind of looking around. And people know that people know that you're looking for something. It's very obvious, but they're not going to help you out because you're wearing that, that other team's jersey. They don't like you. It doesn't matter. Now, it's a much higher, higher rate of, of dislike if you had murdered one of their relatives or a bunch of people from their city. That probably would carry a different level of hate, but... Let's just say 
let's just say it's you know it's it gives you a slight picture i guess maybe if you are a mobster especially back in the 70s and 80s in new york city and you had wiped out let's say a you know four or five members of a family and then you showed back up on that block uh, a year or two later and you dropped something and you were trying to find it there'd be a lot of people that would know that you were working you know that you were looking for something and they weren't going to help they're not going to help you joseph would have had the same sort of interaction with the people around shechem so he's wandering around looking for help looking for his brothers can't figure out where they are they didn't leave any note they're not required to either. It's not like this is unusual. As shepherds, they can go where they want and they can go where the food is. Uh, so yeah, so he's wandering around. Now, maybe while he's there, he's thinking to himself, why am I here? <laughs> what am I doing here? I wonder if, I wonder if they'll even talk to me. Did he talk to God? Did he trust in God? Did he say, hey, you know what, Lord, this is in your hands. Dad wants me to be here. I don't know what's going to happen. You're going to have to work with my brothers. I, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to upset them. Or was he more thinking, well, I'm sure everybody's calmed down after, after the dream uh, re re revelation and everything will be fine. Or maybe he sees, sees himself in that position of leadership. His dad puts him in leadership. His dad marks him with a coat that can be seen for miles. Everybody knows this guy's in charge of something. There's no, there's no question he's in charge. There's no question he's wealthy. And that in and of itself could have been enough for people to just kind of ignore him and, and kind of chuckle at here. This is a, a man in charge of something a man who has wealth and clearly can't find any, you know, what he's looking for. And maybe they found that funny. But eventually, he's wandering around, he's wandering the fields, and, and a guy has pity on him. Now, uh, I'm looking at my note. Uh, again, the family was not like, so, oh, that was, that's what I see. Some commentaries believe that this thing, this being, this person that came to him and helped him was actually an angel. Don't know, but it could be. It says in verse uh, verse 15, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, what are you doing? What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Oh, they have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan or Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a fierce animal devoured him, and we'll see what comes of all of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take a life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this so he could rescue him rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers. Oh, okay. Well, we'll just stop there because, because there's a lot there, right? There's a lot there. So Joseph finds out that the that they're, his brothers are in Shechem, or in Dotham. I say Dotham instead of Dotham because it sounds like Gotham and it kind of gives you that, that dark, eerie feeling from Batman. Anyways, at least it does in my head. So he goes to Dothan. It's a 12-mile trip, so I'm guessing it's something that uh, that takes more than 15 minutes. <laughs> he wanders there. He's on the probably on the back of a donkey, just just trotting along. And it and it says that his brothers see him at a distance. Now the distance there means miles. They saw him probably more than a mile away crossing the desert sands or the plain or however you want to picture this. Again, I think he's probably on the main route. The brothers are off on the hillsides with their various flocks. They are not all hanging out together. It's not, it's not like that. Uh, when, when, when things are, uh, 
when when you're a shepherd out there, it's not like all the brothers, you know, hung out together uh, really close to one another. They would be with their flocks. They'd be half a mile, three quarters of a mile, a mile apart. They'd see each other on the other hillside. It wasn't it wasn't like this, you know, this uh, hand holding opportunity. They all did their own thing, and they would generally come to back together for dinner. Not always, just generally. They kind of have a central place that they kind of came out of, but that would be true for all shepherds. They would have a central pen. If if you, where you were at, you could put up a temporary pen and spend the night there with your sheep, or you could bring them back to the pen at the main gates, and you would you know keep your animals safe from wolves and coyotes and tigers and lions and bears and and marauders and and all that kind of stuff. So they're all spread out. And they see him coming. I picture him traveling again out on a plane or coming into the valley, and they see that freaking coat. And some of them look at one another and they say, ha, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Now, cisterns were <laughs> cisterns were holes in the ground that were used to collect water during rainy season so that you wouldn't have to go as far to, to get water. And they were used all the time. But when it dried up, they dried up. They weren't necessarily lined with, uh, you know, with bricks to keep the water in there for very long. It was just designed to kind of hold it there for a little while. So they see him coming, and somebody has this brilliant idea. These, they're so upset about this these dreams that, that they were going to bow down to this kid. They are so upset because he's already favored by dad. He's already been put in charge of the family. He's already been put in charge of the business. They can't make a deal on their own without running it through their littlest brother who happened to be, uh, you know, born by from the, quote, favorite wife. There's so much dysfunction going on in this family. It's, it's ridiculous if you wanted to break it down sociologically and psychologically. The, the internal battles and the emotional uh, luggage, baggage that these brothers had to, had to be carrying around is ridiculous. All that being said, Joseph's coming along. Somebody wants to kill him. Now, as they get fired up, and I'm guessing... Uh, you know, they're, they they start heading toward the central location, which is where Joseph is probably going to, you know, is kind of maybe see, sees it from a distance. He's like, oh, like there's their main camp. There's the, there's the family tents. There's the colors of the family uh, coverings over the tents. I'll head there and meet up with the brothers and see how things are going. So he's working his way there. He probably could see the tents from, you know, a couple miles away. So the brothers are kind of headed there. Reuben, Reuben picks up on kind of the uh, the energy that's going on, and and out of you know maybe out of curiosity and concern, he he trots over there as quickly as he as he can, and he hears what they are considering. Now, when Reuben hears this, verse twenty one, he tries to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Okay, now I wanted you to keep that in mind. Reuben, at some level had the most the most opportunity to be offended by Joseph's favor and the most opportunity to be offended by Joseph's dreams because Reuben was the oldest brother. Reuben was the firstborn. He was conceived on the first wedding night of Leah and and Jacob. This was this was a big position. So here he is he steps in and he could not openly protect his brother, Joseph, because if he did so, his brothers would turn on him and that would be a problem for him and for Joseph. So he didn't want his brothers to kill him and Joseph. Like that's the energy that's going on around this, we'll call it the campfire. It's probably not a campfire yet, but that's the energy that's going around this camp right now. Reuben comes in and the this. The atmosphere has been stirred up negative. You ever walked into that kind of environment, maybe maybe on a smaller scale amongst your family? Um, you, you walk in and they are they are ready. It seems as though they're ready to kill somebody. 
That's what Reuben walks in. He walks in and they literally, he's got brothers that are planning on, on killing a brother. A brother that of all people, Joseph, uh, uh, Reuben should have been most offended by. And Reuben says, listen, guys, don't kill him. Listen, throw him into a cistern. There's lots of them around here. But don't lay a hand on him. Now, he said this with the purpose that he would come back, rescue Joseph from the other brothers, and take him back to his father. Reuben was going to risk his position of honor in the in the brothers like all the brothers knew this is this is our firstborn like Reuben was the the uh the the, the brothers pick to be the leader and in their own way they probably had all told the Reuben listen if if Joseph's ever out of the way like you're the leader you're the one we're going to get behind you're the one who should be there you're the one who should have gotten that coat you're the one who should you did the right thing you know, taking on your father. You, you, do, 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 do. So Reuben understands he has a lot of, uh, a lot of sway in his words. So he says, all right, listen, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into a cistern. In other words, I, I don't, you know, let it go. Let him die on his own. But don't put us, don't put blood on our hands. So, in doing so, Reuben puts himself in a position as protector of Joseph. Now, his, he, he knew that if Joseph died, his father would be devastated. He knew that. He didn't want to see his father devastated. Do you understand? He doesn't, he doesn't want Jacob to go through the, con, the, the death of his favorite son, which speaks to some level of empathy that he has for his father, some level of love for his father. Now, maybe because of the emotional abuse he's had from his father, but be that as it may, you know, it's not something I can speak to personally. It's just one that I can speak to from working with people who have been through uh, various levels of emotional abuse. Sometimes they have this incredible desire to protect uh, the people who have done the abusing. And I think it maybe Reuben has that when he's when he's saying to himself, I can't let my father go through this. He's already, remember, he's already lost the position. Remember when his father, uh, when Rachel first died, Reuben was the one that either literally picked up the bed of, of Jacob and moved it in with Leah or he, he or vice versa. But at some level, he tried to take control of the family at that moment. He tried to he tried to manipulate his father to sleep with the, to sleep with his first wife again with with Reuben's mother. And and you remember Jacob Jacob was not happy about it. He was quite upset. And Reuben had lost his position, if you want to call it that, his position of honor as far as the father was concerned in that moment. He tried to manipulate Jacob, and, he, and, and I think the brothers stood by him, especially those that were also born of Leah and, and Leah's uh, handmaiden. I forgot her name currently, but I think they especially thought he did the right thing. So there was you know, obviously a little bit of a civil war probably going on within the family. But all of that, I think, is, is poured into this, this, this decision to protect Joseph. He thought, I could protect my dad from devastating emotional um, upheaval if, if Joseph's dead, and I might be able to gain favor in my father's eyes if I'm the one who brings him back, because Joseph will know that, that the brothers threw the, him into the cistern, but I'm the one who rescued him. And that's a big deal. So uh, here we go. Verse, verse uh, yeah, we already covered that. I'm sorry. Yes. These verses, verses 21 and 22, which I've, I've read already. Reuben's heard this. He tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into a cistern in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Trust me, these are highlights of a much longer conversation. This was, 
I know a lot of times when, when preachers preach, right, they read these verses and they make it very quick. This probably was a 20 to 30 minute conversation. Other brothers were coming into the conversation as Reuben was throwing out his ideas. Brothers were bringing, uh, they, they were choosing sides. You had a bit of a civil war going on here. Those who wanted to kill him and Reuben kind of standing firm on don't kill him. Let's just throw him in the cistern. He kept saying that because he wanted to come back and rescue him. He couldn't take his brothers on alone. He knew that. He had to allow them the position of throwing him into a cistern and letting him die on his own. But as more brothers would come into the into into the conversation, it it actually Reuben would abuse that to his advantage, saying, "Do you want blood on your hands? Do you want to be blamed for the murder of your brother? Because it will get out. We will be. We trust me. This stuff doesn't stay you know buried for long. We all know this. So all of that's going on." Uh, verse verse 23, so Joseph comes to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. They took him, they threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. And as they sat there and ate their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and the camels were loaded with spices, balm, myrrh, and they were on their way to take, him to take those things down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, "We will gain. what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's sell him. Now, this is interesting because Judah, Judah at some level, makes a life-saving suggestion. Right? Reuben, remember, Reuben wanted to go back and rescue him. He wanted to, he, you know, he, after the decision was made, okay, we're not going to murder him. He went back to work. When when Joseph was in the cistern, when he was sitting there alone in the in the you know at the bottom of this dark hole with a light only at the top, he began planning the rescue. The brothers went back to work. Some of them made dinner. That the concept that they were sitting down for a meal, in a literary standpoint, means they had no guilt over what their plan was. And their plan originally, right, was to murder him. But their current plan is just let him die alone in the cistern. Three days without water, he's done. There's no water in the cistern. That's why that's noted. Not because it wouldn't, you know, like, oh, well, at least he landed on dry ground. No, it's noted that there's no water in there because they want, the, the writers want you to know, he would have been dead in a matter of days. It wasn't going to take long. He was not going to survive. That was their plan. Let him die on his own. We didn't kill him. He must have fallen in the hole like they could find him later. Now, remember, they've already stripped him of his coat. I don't know what they're going to do with the coat at this point. They could throw it back in the cistern. I don't know. But but they took the coat because they, I'm sure, in their anger and in their passion to make sure he knew he was not the leader that they would choose for the family. They took the representation of that of that leadership away from him, and they made sure, you know, he wasn't wearing it anymore. So when he stood before them, I don't know if they circled him or if they were all in front of him, but they made sure he knew your role as leader is not something we honor. Your role as dad's favorite is a is a position that we see as a horrible position, and we hate you for it. So his whole mindset of being thrown into the cistern, like, I, I really don't know. I don't know what I would be thinking. Do you land at the bottom of the cistern thinking, okay, they're, they're, gonna, they're just going to prove their point. I'll sit here through the night. I'm sure, I'm sure somebody's going to come get me. I, I think that's probably what his thoughts were. Remember, he has great confidence in those two dreams or he would not have shared them with the family because he knew they didn't like him to begin with. So I'm guessing at some level he's sitting there curled up, curled up, I don't know, laying down. He's just sitting there and he's thinking, I, somebody, somebody, they've got to come back for me. They've got to come back for me. I'm sure they're coming back for me. Meanwhile, the brothers are having dinner. They have no guilt. That's why that's written. 
Judah makes a life-saving suggestion, which again alleviates guilt. He says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Now, it's not all the brothers. Reuben's not involved in this conversation. I kind of wonder what he would have said if, if it's true. You know, if, if, if he was there. Sorry, if it's true. <laughs> if he was there. Like, would, how would he have interacted with it? He clearly wanted to, to save Joseph. He did not want anything bad to happen to him. Now Judah is saying, let's not even let him die on his own. Let's pull him out and let's sell him into slavery. Now it's possible, it's possible that he saw this as a passive way to save his life, to not feel guilt about murdering a family member. And here's another suggestion. It's possible that his thought was, I can redeem him later. I can track him down and buy him back. What we're really trying to do is teach him a lesson that we don't want him to run the family. What we're really trying to do is let dad know that that his favorite son is not the son that we want to be answering to. Now, I'm guessing the majority of brothers were there at dinner, but not all of them. And Judah sees no benefit to the family of letting Joseph die. So they, they all, they're all like, yeah, that's a good idea. The brothers agreed. It was unanimous. I think at some level they probably were all thinking, it's probably not a good idea to murder a brother. Some of them had already been involved, remember, in a bunch of murders uh, of the men of Shechem. And maybe they were feeling some, some guilt from all of that work. And they were thinking, I don't want, to, I don't want any more blood on my hands. This is no fun. Or maybe they, they had talked with their brothers who had killed a bunch of the men in Shechem and thought, I don't want to go through that. Man, that guy's messed up. I don't want to be like you. All right, so, oops, I picked up the wrong, the wrong paper. So they, they said, yes, let's do it. So the Midianite merchants came by. His brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now it's noted that these guys were not human traffickers, okay? They were, they were spice traders. They probably were not in the business of picking up slaves, but picking up slaves would have been something of a normal thing to do along the road. The, as they're pulling them, uh, Joseph out of the, the cistern, it is implied that solemn vows were taken by everybody who was there, including Joseph, to never speak or tell anyone what had occurred. Now, this is, this is from legend, okay? This is oral tradition. But it does coincide with the concept or at least help us understand why Joseph remained silent even after he became this, the second most powerful person in the world, why he never sent a message back to his father. Even in Potiphar's house, when he was in charge of Potiphar's home, he could have written a note, given it to any other of the underlings, and say, get this to a merchant a large merchant, uh, you know, a, a rich merchant in the, you know, in this land of Egypt, uh, in this land of, of Israel or whatever, Canaanite, the Canaanite land. They would have, they would have gotten it. Like, there were no questions. Nobody would have opened it. He could have sent uh, Jacob a note saying, hey, dad, some bad things happen. I'm alive and well. I'm in Egypt. Come and visit me anytime. I'm in charge of a home. I'm a servant here. You know, but but come and see me anytime. I, like, there's so many ways he could have reached out, reached out to him. But but according to legend, when when Judah went to the cistern and he yelled down to Joseph, Joseph probably stood up, was like, "Yeah, yeah, you know what? What do you want?" He's like, "Listen, do you want to live or do you want to die?" Well, I want to live. Okay, listen, you need to swear, and whatever that vow was, whatever that covenant was that you will not tell any soul for as long as you live what we did to you. And we will get you out, and we're going we're gonna to send you away. And you are to never return. 
And I'm sure Joseph, right? If you're if you're stuck at the bottom of a of a cistern, what what options do you have at that point? You've come to realize by the brothers that are now standing around the top that if you don't agree to this to this vow, you're not getting out alive. They are not going to let you live. The plan has become clear. It wasn't to scare him, it was to kill him. Now he doesn't know that Judah is still, you know, still making plans to come rescue him. He doesn't know that Judah could not let that on. If Judah had let it on, then I'm sure Joseph could have said something. Or at least delayed what was going on in some way. Or he could have said, I demand, you know, that Judah also be part of this. Things could have turned quickly in Joseph's favor. But he didn't know what was going on. So he makes the vow and they let down the rope or they let down the ladder and they pull him out and they stand next to him and they do whatever it is that they do. Uh, <laughs> they, they could have, yes, they could have cut their finger and pinky sweared. But usually a vow of this magnitude meant, meant grabbing the um, inner thigh of each other. <laughs> In other words, to say, this value, you know, on the value of, of the, my life and everything that brings life out of me, the loins, I swear that if I break this vow, I will die, my children will die. So that's why they would grab or hold that part of the male <laughs> apparatus. Oh, move on, Bob. So, Yes, here we go. Now, Joseph gets sold, right, to the Midianites. But when he gets to Egypt, and we'll get into this some other time, but two traders are named, which probably means he, he was sold again. He was sold again before he got there. So the Midianites, who probably were, like I said, spice traders, as they're getting closer to Egypt and the, and the markets, you know, the market people start running into each other, they run into a slave trader, and they're not looking to get into one or the other, so they look to either get their money back, maybe a little bit more, and the slave trader takes on Joseph. So Joseph now becomes a little less easy to track down. If Judah's plan was, I'll find him later, as far as Judah's you know, concerned, he's, I, sold him to slave, uh, I sold him to spice traders with the idea that they would probably keep him as a worker, and he would be part of the part of the the trading, you know, um, uh, not conglomerate. What do I want to say? The the merchants moving back and forth across the land. So it would be easy easier for him to find him. He probably didn't expect the Midianites to sell him to a slave trader, who then sold him to the trade market, who then sold him to Potiphar. So the more he got sold, the less likely it was Judah could have ever tracked him down if Judah ha ever tried to. And we don't know. He might have. So they make this. They make this vow. They make the trade. They make the sale. They they head down to Egypt. When Reuben, okay, Reuben returns to the sister, and he sees that Joseph's not there. He tore his clothes. He freaks out. This is how passionate he was about making sure Joseph didn't die and making sure his father doesn't go through the emotional emotional turmoil of losing his favorite son. So he tore, his he tore his clothes and he runs back to his brothers and he says, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? In other words, what am I going to do? It's bad enough what I did with Leah's bed. Now my father will kill me. He holds us responsible. He's going to hold me responsible for this. So they went and they got, sorry, I just made it really bad. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that on the, on the line or not, but anyways. They, they went and they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat. They dipped it in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether or not it's your son's robes. And he recognized it and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph surely has been torn into pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So the father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph 
to Egypt to Potiphar, one of Potiphar's officials, the captain of the guard. One of the, sorry, one of Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard. So when it says that they took the robe, it meant that they, it, it, that word also means sent. So they took the robe, they tore it, they bloodied it, they sent it away. So they actually, to me, this makes more sense. They send the bloody robe home to let dad view it by himself. And then they showed up later to comfort him. That's when the sons and daughters all arrived. So they let Jacob be alone for several days to mourn his son. And then they show up and they are united in their deceit. Remember, they all took a vow. And I'm guessing at this point, Reuben's part of that vow now. Because Reuben has heard the story. They explained to him what had happened. So he was now part of the tearing of the robe and the sending it in front so that dad would see it first. They, they, you know, whoever brought it to him was like, is this your son's robe? The brothers would have known it was his robe, so they would not have asked Jacob that question. They sent it ahead with somebody who was kind of neutral and said, when you see Jacob, ask him if this is his son's robe. They were united in, the, in their deceit. Joseph obviously makes it to Egypt probably weeks later, and he lands in Potiphar's house, which is a very affluent and influential home. Now, he doesn't land there in charge of anything. He's just the latest of the regular runts that are periodically purchased by the person who is managing all of them in Potiphar's house, the job that eventually Joseph will, also, will have uh, as well. But currently, he's just a runt. He's been moved from place to, you know, at least twice, probably three times in the, in the human trafficking trade. He's got to be a little bit bummed out by what's transpired. He's got to have a, at least a healthy curiosity as to what God is doing, what is going on. And we'll get more into that later. But the brothers, they accomplished generally what their goal is. Reuben had to be disappointed because his plan, his plan was going to work out great. Everybody would have ended up happy, and he would have possibly had enough favor with the family to, to retake a role at some level of leadership. And Judah, Judah thinks probably at some level, I can track this brother down and, and bring him back home whenever I think it's necessary. But first, we got to let dad pay for what he's done. We got to let him go through the emotional pain that we've gone through, listening to him go on and on about how special and important Joseph is. So right now, we've just got, again, a ton of dysfunction, a bunch of really intense, intense emotions, both from Joseph, the brothers, the father, the families. And everything kind of kind of lands here at the end of this chapter with uh, with question marks. You've got to be curious about everything that's going on. How are they going to respond? How are they going to interact? How does the family move on? Does Jacob really stay in mourning until he dies? And and how does Joseph interact with his new circumstances? So many people interact with circumstances as though they are the excuse for their for their emotional well-being, right? Is Joseph going to be one of those people that looks at his circumstances and says, all right, you know, I am now a victim of what's happening around me. The brothers sure did, right? The, the brothers were definitely victims of their circumstances. They saw what had happened to them regarding Joseph and they became, they became bitter and angry because Joseph was ruining their lives and ruining their position in the family. And they were offended and hurt. But they, this is how you know that they're playing the victim. Victims always believe if I change the circumstance or remove my competition, my life will be better. And that's the approach that the, that the brothers had. Will Joseph have the same response? All right, I got to go. We'll come back to this again on the next episode of... The Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts.
Good whatever time of day it is for you right now as you're listening to the Epic Narrative. Here are some of my thoughts. Right there at the end, we talked about how the circumstances can, for, for so many people, circumstances are their excuse for the negative way in which they approach life. They allow circumstances to control them. And yet, circumstances literally are irrelevant. They're irrelevant to your mental and emotional well-being because you choose how you're going to respond to those circumstances. So many people do this when they walk into work, right? I, I Where I work currently at a, at a liquor store with some really fun people, honestly, but, but when they walk in, there's plenty of reasons in that store to not be super excited, to not be happy. And I consciously go in with the idea of, I'm going to remain happy. I'm going to whistle while I work. I'm going to greet every customer with a happy face. I'm going to, you know, uh, whenever, as long as I see them leaving, I'm going to tell them to have a nice day because I know that I can change the atmosphere in a particular place, even though the circumstances are just not, they're not like, honestly, I wouldn't run my, I just wouldn't run a business like this. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my store to look like this the way things are i guess you could call them organized or the lack thereof the way things are sold the presented the the way things are are designed and or like there's there's probably uh, there's probably less than 15% of what happens in that business that i would also let happen if i was in charge but i'm not in charge I'm just an hourly employee told told what to do and that's what I do and I do it to the best of my ability and I choose to do it with the best attitude I can. Now sometimes I am overwhelmed physically with all that needs to be done and I am I am physically tired. And so I, it's interesting to me because people I work with notice it. And they they <laughs> I laugh because sometimes they say stuff to me and I think wow that is just in and of itself, that's just a really rude thing to say to anybody. But they'll say things like, "Bob, you look like uh, you look terrible." Is what they well, they don't say terrible. They use another word, uh, and I'll be <laughs> and I'll smile and be like, "Well, I'm I'm really tired. You know, I've moved 137 boxes filled with liquor all over the place, uh, trying to stack it up neatly." In a building that shouldn't be storing liquor, it should just be a store. But instead, we're you know we're doing everything. And anyways, sorry, I got off on what I would change. But but in in my head, it's like, well, I'm exhausted. You know, it's nine o'clock at night, and I'm really tired. So I'm I don't look good. I get it. Anyways, it just makes me laugh. So I usually laugh, and I'll say, you know, I'm tired. It's just the way it happens. But uh, I consciously try not. Do which is difficult for me because I am a morning person, and we don't close till nine, and I generally have to be there till nine thirty, as the store closes. Sometimes later, depending on how the counts go from the register. But, but I choose to interact with those circumstances. So, so when my coworker tells me that I look like poop, I just chuckle inside and I say, "Okay, you need to," you know, I take that as a word of encouragement, and I know it's funny to think about, right? But I do. I take it like a word of a word of encouragement from the Lord. He's like, hey, hey, just smile some more. You need to shift atmosphere. You 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 can do it. Not need to, as in you better or the world's gonna end. It's just I have that. Op- Here's your invitation, Bob. Here's your opportunity, Bob. Here's a way to expand your capacities, Bob. Do you want to take it? I'm giving you the choice. And I really try to take every one of those. Every one of those. And when I'm when I'm moving the boxes or, or helping, you know, a customer who, who just, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter who they are, I find opportunity to whistle. I try and, and find a song different each day. But I do find that it, interesting for me is something I stay curious about. There's, there's two songs that I generally go back to when I unconsciously and I find myself whistling them and I think, wow fascinating that songs come up again and i don't know why i don't know if it's the rhythm of it the sound of it but it's fascinating but it does help change things it really does and you can too and and uh why did i get into all that 
What did that have to do with this? Oh, the episode, right. Uh, the brothers, I think, were, you know, they chose to be victims of their circumstances. Their home life was terrible. Jacob was not a good father. And, and I've talked about that in his life anyway. But they chose to respond a certain way. And their idea of, of changing, you know, making life better for them was to change their circumstances. But it's always a hard issue. Victims are always looking to change the circumstances because they think it has something to do with how they feel, and it really doesn't. So their way of changing their circumstances was to get rid of their brother. And then they figured, well, dad will feel really bad, but when he's done mourning the loss of his son, everything should go the way that, the way that it should. We should be honored as we should be in order of our birthright, and dad should remain out of the picture because we clearly know what we're doing and all of us can do this better than joseph and then life will be really good we'll be wealthier and happier and everything in our world will be so much better when joseph's gone and and well we'll see what happens in the in the next episodes of the epic nerve but but please do your best when it comes to circumstances around you that you think i have to change this in order to in order to deal with life, I would challenge you to approach that differently and see if you could just change the way you view life, regardless of your circumstances. Have a good day, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.